0: Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast.
1: Finding emotional connection and certainty in a world full of confusion is at the heart of Aisling Smith's debut novel, ...after the rain. So Aisling, welcome to 3CR. Thank you,
0: David.
1: Now, there are four main characters. You might like to come closer to the microphone a little and that would get (laughs) us lovely. The four main characters of this novel are husband and wife, Malty and Benjamin, and their two daughters, Ellery and Verona. That sort of sets some of the background, but let's start with the house because this is where the novel begins and ends... And we have Malty in a new home. Her toes are still used to the stained carpet of the oakley house she She's not used to the staircase either. There's a sense of getting familiar with your new environment but never quite being at home in in the novel that you create.
0: yeah, absolutely. um I'm really interested in the idea of house as a character in its own right. And the idea that a house kind of has a life cycle and, um, yeah, a personality of its own.
1: But it also represents success because Malty and Benjamin, Malty a lawyer, uh, yep. Benjamin's a linguist, so uh, it's Brighton. They're moving up in the world. <laughs> yes. But a family as well. Yep. So it, it represents all of those things. But at the end of the novel, we have a sense of Ellery and Verona being a bit Not necessarily put out, but their feet are going to be taken out from underneath them.
0: Yes, absolutely. They are very attached to the house um, and they see it as kind of their property and their possession. And it's sort of a big, you know, you've got four or three very disparate people in many ways living in a space together. And um, the house kind of is the, I guess, the outline around all of that that kind of connects them.
1: But they each have a different impression of what the house means or represents. Yes, absolutely. And that's the same for virtually any family, any home, and and the siblings and the like. But this sense of disassociation is even greater because there's a backdrop to all of this. Maltese are from Fiji but of Indian descent – And there are coups taking place over the course of the novel. Mm -hmm. So we have this disconnection, disassociation, even with cultural and national identity that you provide.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think all the characters are kind of questioning this idea of belonging and identity and what it means to be at home somewhere. And, yeah, as you point out, each of the three sections of the novel coincides with the various coups in Fiji, yeah.
1: But it would also speak to us as Australians many Australians would yep. find themselves in that position coming from multicultural backgrounds
0: yeah for sure
1: so how many generations does this go on for
0: yeah yeah that is the question what does it mean to belong in a place and how how do you how do you figure that out what does that process look like
1: yeah and your own background
0: so quite similar to the girls in the book, um, my mother is Fiji Indian, so that very much draws on that part of family history and my father is um, was white Australian, so um, Irish, German, Scottish norwegian English. Smith Smith exactly. <laughs>
1: <laughs> very solid name. but that sense of unease that you establish first with that home and finding your Place there and the whole uh, world displacement, it's also present in the relationship between Malty and Benjamin. Mm. And it's represented by a ghost, you could say. And each of the individuals have their own ghost. So for Malty, it's Udra Udra. Would mm. you care to
0: explain Udra Udra? So um, he was a cannibal. On, in Fiji. He is a real historical figure. Um, um, so he actually lived and there was this kind of um, belief that if you could consume enough bodies, you would become immortal. And I think Malti's relationship with him sort of reflects her own sense of unease and discomfort with Fiji and her own heritage.
1: And yet she's a logical woman. She's yes. a lawyer. Yes, she is. How do you account for people having this sense of a spectre and a ghost haunting them, which is illogical?
0: Mm. I think we're all a bit um, susceptible to the uncanny, and I've seen that so many times. Like People, people might be really logical, but you, know, you still touch wood if you say the wrong thing, or you'll still do the salt over the shoulder or whatever it is. Like, even as rational human beings, I think there's something about the, the uncanny that kind of haunts us. So,
1: because yeah. basically, well, who's, who's the ghost for Ellery? Who's the ghost for Verona? Mm. They've each got their own.
0: They do. So there's Kutichattan for Ellery and um, the boot, which is a ghost figure um, from Indian mythology for Verona. So, yes, they're all, they're all haunted in their own way by kind of um, mythical figures but also haunted, I think, in many ways by Benjamin as well.
1: Well, now, Benjamin, here we go, because uh, we can't even be sure about language when it comes to Benjamin. Benjamin's a linguist and a researcher in that field. Um, And Malty, pregnant at the beginning of the novel, has these sorts of – or is haunted by an uncertainty about Benjamin and finding her place in the relationship – Benjamin as a linguist. I love this phonologically. I love you is very similar to I love you too. I love you. So can we ever be certain even within our own language?
0: Mm. And I kind of love that about language, the idea that in as much as it's a way that we, it's basically the only tool that we have to connect with each other and yet it's so flawed and so inadequate in so many ways. And I think that comes to the fore in this family in particular.
1: But also then having a language of our own or of our own culture, to consolidate that foundation. And again, at the end of the novel, you do come up with one, petrichor. Yes. Australian word. I didn't know this. An an agrelatious odour. Would you care to explain petrichor for me, please?
0: Yes. So it's one of my very favourite words, and it's the scent of the earth um, after rain. So when you've had a hot day and it rains, and then you can smell that, that scent on the air, that's petrichor.
1: And something we can identify as Australians, Yes. Etc. We need a word coming back and you land at Tullamarine and you can actually smell the eucalyptus mm. and that's very uh, indicative of, of Australia as well. Now, the novel is in three sections and the emphasis shifts, which is fascinating. Just as we settle into Malty and Benjamin and what's going to happen with the relationship... We find out because we jump several years and we have now Ellery being the main focus. All the characters are there. but And I was wondering how much I should be giving away about <laughs> Malty and Benjamin to get to Ellery. What's happened?
0: Yes, so it ends, the first part definitely ends on this kind of note where I think there's a little bit of hope being introduced and then um, it's, it's a very different scene that we pick up with on the um, in the second part. So you can see what's actually happened to the marriage between Malty and Benjamin and yeah, and Ellery trying to kind of grapple with that. So there's space between part one and part two that's never really articulated that the reader has to kind of fill in for themselves.
1: But Ellery is having, or is challenged in terms of her relationship with her father. What's going on there?
0: Yeah, so I think that she's coming to the realisation that the the kind of fun-loving, carefree father that she's always adored is, you know, maybe looks a little bit different as she starts to get older and the fundamental unreliability of Benjamin really comes through for her. But, you know, she's only 11 turning 12 and that's a, that's a big realisation to try to come to terms with, I think.
1: But she's finding that Benjamin is not reliable, which exactly. influences her... Whole attitude towards him, yes, but he has expectations about how she should behave.
0: Yes, for sure.
1: (laughs) So, how how should we relate to our parents in that regard? But then, what's interesting? The third section, the the focus shifts to Verona, the younger of the two children yes and she has a different perception again mm. of benjamin so how do we reconcile all of these different outlooks perceptions within the one family
0: yeah well that's sort of the idea that i was playing with this this question of perception and the reader i think gets presented with three very different versions of a character so what is truth who is the real benjamin you know, the novel opens with this question, what has happened to Benjamin? But I think in many ways the question of the novel is, who is Benjamin?
1: Um, well, and he has... He periodically disappears, shall we say. I mean, how much can we say about Benjamin?
0: Yeah, Do, that's, I, fair.
1: That's, that's fair. That's <laughs> fair, as in um, what, ha- what ultimately happens to him. Are, are you able to reveal that? Do you want the, the listener to know before they tackle the novel? Or how much can we say? <laughs> it's okay says yeah. the publicist over on the in, in the corner of the studio. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so what what happens to to Benjamin?
0: So Benjamin ultimately passes away and there's the third part of the novel deals very much with grief and coming to terms with reality um particularly when that person is no longer around.
1: And this is where we get to the notion of stories. Now, Benjamin has been sending Ellery stories in the hope of making a reconnection. Mm. We've heard, uh, because the Ellery and Verona look back, there's the funeral, but then they look back over events, over their lives, which become their stories. Yes. And... One of the quotes from the book, words and stories can be stolen too, you know. In fact, they're one of the most valuable things that can be taken. And this almost gets us back to ghosts that haunt us, I think.
0: Yes, absolutely. That
1: was your intention?
0: Yeah, no, for sure. This, yeah. I think the story is very cyclical in many ways, as you point out. Um, And stories and ghosts, as you say, they're so intertwined. It's all about, I guess, about memory in many ways how we remember things and kind of the the narratives that we come up with to help us deal with our emotion and pain and feeling.
1: But if we can't be certain and if people are telling different stories of the same event, then are those stories real or actual?
0: Mm.
1: What's the challenge here?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. I think that every story is valid, but being valid doesn't necessarily mean true. Like what is truth?
1: and that whole notion then of the uncertainty that lies beneath our lives this could be quite frightening <laughs> in fact that we haven't got that solid foundation that we think we have yeah so it's it's um the trepidation of of moving out i mean even ellery finds it because she ends up with a boyfriend but then that whole question of well when do you leave home that foundation when do you embark on the unknown, yes. all of these great challenges are there in the novel. So, in many ways, a multi-layered novel yes. to, to that end, um, and di- the different stories and perceptions within a family. So, the author is Ashling Smith. The novel is entitled After the Rain. And it is a Hachette release, and it's your debut novel, by it the way. It
0: is, yes. It's very exciting.
1: Very exciting and quite an accomplishment, really. Thank you. Hopefully not being too condescending there, but for a debut <laughs> novel, it, it's, it's brilliant.
0: Thank so you. So
1: thank you very much for talking with me today. Thank you for having me. Once again, we see the machinations of the criminal underclass in Lorraine Peck's latest novel, The Double Bind. So, Lorraine, welcome back to 3CR.
2: Thank you very much, Dave.
1: Now, this is a sequel to your previous novel, The Second Son, but you've escalated things in a variety of ways. To begin with, there's some carryover from uh, the previous novel, with Amy, especially, in a number of ways, what's happened to her?
2: We aren't giving too much away for all your listeners who haven't actually read The Second Son yet, but Amy is carrying another secret she hasn't shared with Johnny yet, um, and that is really giving her a whole lot of grief. Uh,
1: but she's also got post-traumatic stress disorder.
2: <gasps> Absolutely, and so does her son, or their son, Johnny and Amy's son, Sasha, who was 10 in the second son but is now 11 and he's growing up really fast.
1: But he was traumatised mm. in the previous novel mm. and so that behaviour is now exhibiting at school. That's Funny a,
2: how that kids act out in that way.
1: How did Johnny <laughs> and Amy cope with all of that? But here we go. We've also got the spectre of somebody from the previous novel coming back to avenge the death of his brother. Mm. And that's intriguing because that's what held a lot of the second son together, families going at each other, revenge for action taken by the other, etc.
2: Yeah, it's all tit for tat in the underbelly of Sydney's crime scene.
1: Now, but that... Then leads to a sort of little subplot. Um, It's not overt. Jackson Slater is coming back to investigate the possibility of revenge. Mm. He's a returned serviceman.
2: Yes, he is. A special forces soldier.
1: So he can kill rather well. Very well. But he's gone into the forces to get away from his family.
2: Exactly. Exactly which is a recurring theme in both of my novels. It doesn't matter how far you run, though, you can't escape your family.
1: But also, then, you can't escape the trauma associated with death in whatever environment you're in.
2: Absolutely. And that's yeah.
1: what Jackson has to face. Yes. So there's, there's another interesting thread that's taking place. Curiously... The family principles still apply in this novel. Johnny and Amy have gone up the coast to try and get away from family. What happens?
2: <laughs> well, Johnny's father, Milan Novak, is the don, if you will, or the head of their Croatian crime family. And although he appears to be okay with his only remaining son, disappearing up north to lead a legitimate life. Of course, he isn't really. And he doesn't want to give up his connection to his grandson, who he really tries to get his hooks into.
1: Who he's offered a gun to, by the way.
2: Oh, yeah. Well, you see, the Novaks have a tradition where when you turn 12, you get your first gun and you get taken out bush to learn how to use all the guns in the family arsenal, one after the other, and also do drills in how to commit various crimes.
1: But also uh, the pater familias, he can make decisions and Johnny's got to go along
2: with it. Yeah, see, Johnny is still uh, under the thumb in lots of ways in that he still seeks his father's approval and even though during The Second Son, I mean, his main character arc or his hero's journey, if you will, Johnny's journey, was to really kind of come out of the darkness into the light, almost the opposite of Michael Corleone's in The Godfather and uh, break free from his his father's grip, uh, mostly his father's grip and his desire to get his father's approval. But there's still, you know, it, if you're brought up with violence as the answer to every problem, it's really hard to break out of those habits.
1: Well, we'll get onto the violence a little more later, but now you've escalated things because we have an international drug cartel coming into things and they're doing deals or Milan is, but it's almost the same story with Carl Carrera. Mm. He's trying to get away from his family, but can't either. What's happening here?
2: I know. Bringing in the Mexicans was something that came out of uh, my experience with my first husband, who was actually a career criminal. And he was uh, a link between the Sinaloa cartel and the Boston Mafia when he had a marijuana business. And so I learned a lot about uh, how that all worked. Now, when we got married, he'd retired. So I wasn't actually married to him during those many years when he did that. Um, However, when we separated, he went back to America, joined his old gang and got busted with 100 kilos of marijuana in Louisville, Kentucky. Those experiences really informed my decision to go with the Mexicans.
1: But here we go again. The same principles still apply. Carl's trying to get away, but his business is actually bought out. His legitimate business is bought out. The family has made a decision for him.
2: Exactly, yes. So he has no escape either.
1: But now we get into some rather interesting intrigue because, again, Amy and Sasha find themselves in the crosshairs, so to speak, but it's far more subtle. Come over to my house to play with my daughter. And it's a form of control.
2: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and Sasha really falls hard for one of Car- uh, Carl Carrera's gang members' daughters who's a beautiful, blonde, American chick. Well, <laughs> he, he
1: actually races over there Ooh. without telling his parents yeah. to play games, which, okay, on a domestic front, that's okay. You know, you tell your child off for, for not informing you, mm. but this has far more serious repercussions.
2: Yeah. Well, you don't want to be doing that. You don't want to be making yourself an unwitting kidnappee in the middle of a big heist that is going dreadfully wrong for all parties.
1: But also, again, on the domestic front, you can't take for granted any ordinary situation.
2: No, no, not at all. Every, every step has massive ramifications.
1: Before we then get on to the heist and all of that sort of thing and the drug running, you have another subplot there of domestic violence. And you go into this in great detail uh, Len and Emily and the violence that is exhibited there, the need for refuge houses and such like, the detail is is actually quite exact.
2: Thank you. That's really great to hear. Uh, Johnny's wife, Amy, uh, she makes a new friend in Emily, and she's immediately a little suspicious about the bruises and so on, as we all would be in that situation that it uh, spirals out of control and she's dragged right into the thick of it. And I did read a couple of great books doing my research for that.
1: But also then, the women go back.
2: Yes, it happens so often. Apparently, usually around eight times, the woman will go back because often uh, the threats uh, by the perpetrator and made to her family, to the children. You know, I will take your children away, and you know the courts will award them to me because of this, that, and the other. Because I'm going to make you look like a drug addict, like a you know a loser of some kind. and I will get the children. So, when a perpetrator says that to a wife, to his wife, it's very hard for her to run.
1: Now, the interesting thing here the intriguing thing is len does get his come up and <laughs> shall we say but at that time because we can label him we can see he's guilty uh, there has been a murder committed of somebody that was helping emily and he says i didn't do it mm-hmm. but can we believe him
2: oh, i don't know can we? I don't know. I'm not going to tell you. Well, we can't. Yeah, but
1: the, <laughs> the the listener's going to have to read it for themselves. But it raises that interesting concern mm. in terms of, well, do we ever believe somebody mm. like that mm. and therefore how can we ever get to know the truth? Now, we are going to run out of time, but there's there's actually a heist <laughs> taking place of drugs and the details of the shipment are extraordinary mm-hmm. as are the sums involved. And Johnny's got to keep uh, the police at bay. He's negotiating with the police, Mm. in fact. He's got to keep his family happy. He's got to keep the cartel happy. He's got to protect his own friends at the same time. How were you able to negotiate all of these
2: threads? I know it's it's a funny thing because I'm a pantser. I don't plan anything. So my plots evolve organically that when I hit a wall, I just go for a walk and I find walking somehow or other will untangle the threads for me and then I can plait them together in some way that makes sense. That It's not something I can really explain.
1: (laughs) But the detail. Kilos of coke usually come in densely packed bricks stamped with a maker's mark and wrapped in plastic. A one kilo brick is about the size of an old-fashioned Sydney Yellow Pages, the AK section. (laughs) A crime syndicate based in Canberra tried to smuggle close to 400 kilos. I mean, you've got a lot of detail.
2: Yeah, I do a lot of research.
1: And the sums
2: of money, they seem extraordinary but they're not. They're not. This is going on all the time. Hundreds of millions Hundreds of, of millions. Hundreds of millions yes. of dollars.
1: So we have this going on in the background, which is, is the, the driving force in some ways. But the psychology of it all and what Johnny has to negotiate and try and placate and hold in balance so that, He doesn't get sent to prison, that he gets to keep uh, Amy happy, who's psychologically stressed and has a secret, Uh, his son on the straight and narrow. So all of these are compelling forces right throughout the novel. But there is one last thing that struck me as particularly interesting, and that was Granny Slater. Granny's from um, The Second Son as well, but Mm -hmm. she was... Sort of the opposition, but they're looking after her. But an intriguing line My grandson paid the highest price for his actions. He's dead now, so you don't have to worry about him anymore. No more nightmares. She drops his hands suddenly and clasps her arthritic hands together. The nightmares are gone. So she's trying to pl- placate Sasha, mm-hmm. but in many ways, she's talking about her life mm-hmm. and the nightmares she's had all through. Her life.
2: I, I think for me, the second book, The Double Bind, is about the women driving the action in a way that the second son perhaps was not. The women were reacting. But in The Double Bind, it's Amy who continually comes up with the seeds of each plan. And Branka and Granny Slater and Amalia, they all all end up showing strengths that we may not have imagined. And so the second book probably owes more to, say, a show like Ozark, where it's really the women who come to the fore.
1: Well, the book is The Double Bind. The author is Lorraine Peck, and it's a text publishing release. So Lorraine, thank you very much for coming in and talking with me today.
2: That's a pleasure, David.